0: Welcome to Success with Style, the show where we talk with stylish and successful people and how style has influenced their success. I am Rob Giardinelli, along with my co-host Lance Avery Morgan, and today we are honored to have our dear friend Ron Davis. Ronnie, boy.
1: Wonderful to be here.
0: We are so glad to have you here, and he is going to talk about his journey, we'll call it a journey, through through the, navigating the television business for Let's just say a couple of years. Well, I'm, I'm going to call it Mr. <laughs> Toad's wild ride at Disney. I like that <laughs> even more. I'm going to go ahead
2: and speak first for Ron on his behalf and, and tell him that, uh, and tell our listeners that Ron is, he's probably one of the most fun people you'd want to have at a dinner table, at a dinner party, anywhere fun. Ron Davis likes to make more fun. With. Well,
1: coming from Lance Avery Morgan, the bon vivant of all time, that is definite high praise.
2: Oh, go on. <laughs>
0: I mean it go on. I'll be here all night. <laughs> you are too much. You know that.
2: Well what's what we're gonna do is we're gonna start off at Ron Davis's early beginnings. So we know he learned how to walk and
1: talk. Well, we're still working on that. And from, um,
2: from there, it was downhill. From right? there, it was downhill. <laughs> but you, you grew up in Texas. You're a native Texan of many generations.
1: I am, yes, yes. I was born in San Antonio, raised in Austin. That's and, right. Oh, uh, I didn't know you were born in San Antonio. I was. We oh. lived in San Antonio till I was about nine years old. Oh, okay. And then uh, wound up going to school here in Austin, uh, graduated from the University of Texas at Austin with a Bachelor of Science in Radio, Television, and Film, graduating in 2016,
0: Okay. okay. We love that you are 24, 24 we, years old and you have accomplished yeah. so
2: much. He's barely out of his teenage years. I am year. I mean, 24
1: years old. Read my official bio if you don't believe me. <laughs>
2: That I probably co-wrote at that point. <laughs> yes, you did. Well, you're I, not even 24. No, he's. I love my much older friend Ron Davis. <laughs> he's such an inspiration and kind of a guy guiding light because he's so much older than I am. I
1: I, I am the wise old sage you compared are. to you. You are.
2: The, the, i wouldn't, not old, just wise. How's that? <laughs> wise ass. <laughs> yes. Wise ass. Yes. Wise sage. acre. But okay, so so you grew up in Austin, and Austin's a great place to grow up in
1: as you know austin particularly during that time is a fantastic place to grow up in and i don't think i i certainly at the time didn't recognize what a wonderful city it was because it was what i knew yeah none of us did and in retrospect it's just a very special place and it was back then too all the greenery and the hills and the culture and a really educated populace right a lot of really bright people in austin yeah and um And a very artistically inclined population as well. Um, Yeah, it was a wonderful place to be from. It's a wonderful place to come back and visit. Which leads me to
2: our first official question, and that is, um, what did you do to earn your first legitimate dollar? Like, what was your high school? Did you have a part-time job in high school? Like everyone else did?
1: Did I did I earned my first legitimate dollar. working for my grandfather. Oh. My grandfather had a surveying company, a small surveying oh. company. He I lived in the hill that. country outside of San Antonio. And uh, I lived with my grandparents when I was 15 years old that summer. And I was on his survey crew. And let me tell you, it was brutal. We were up before sunrise. Uh, I was chopping brush with a chainsaw all day long. I was trudging through the underbrush.
2: To make way for the surveying equipment. Yes, that- compose yes. the same surveys okay gotcha
1: and it was a dirty grueling hard job and mm-hmm. i would get home i was living with my grandparents and so for the summer and so i would get home and i would go to my grandfather's bathroom and he had a he had a, uh, a full-length mirror in his bathroom and i would take all my dirty <laughs> my dirty stinky clothes off mm-hmm. and i would pick the ticks and chiggers off oh god and i always had about 12 or 13 at the wow. end of the day wow yeah Wow, that's
2: a tough way to make a living for anyone at any age, especially for a first job. So that probably helped you understand a work ethic, if I'm not mistaken.
1: Uh, Every time I think I've got an actual, my job, whatever is in front of me is actually difficult. I think about that and I realize that nothing I have ever done since then comes close to that. Right. And I did that for several summers in a row when I was a teenager. So that was really backbreaking work. And a lot of people today continue to do really back-breaking work and that's how they that's how they get by and I'm lucky not to have to do that
2: uh, but but I think you kind of do because you break your back in LA which is a back-breaking city it can be well, in the met- biz in the show biz
1: metaphorically speaking but I'm not yeah. picking ticks and chiggers off my body at the end of the day sometimes <laughs> let's, <laughs> end let's, let, let's, let's end that let's every sentence let's with let's what Ron tomorrow. Davis says with sometimes the sometimes I'm suturing today. wounds yeah. but that's
2: it <laughs> self-inflicted sometimes occasionally yeah yeah, so, yeah.
0: do you think, because you know, television production has a, you know long hours? Do you think? How do you think that experience with your first job kind of helped prepare you for work ethic-wise for you know the television industry?
1: Uh, that's a very good question because I, I I think you have to you shouldn't go into the entertainment business if you don't have a good work ethic because you'll be you'll get weeded out very quickly. Mm-hmm. And Lance, you know this from your time in Los Angeles. Yeah. Uh, the harder
2: uh, you work, the better luck you have.
1: The, the better, yeah. And it's not, it's not for the faint of heart. And you do put in very long hours. Whether you And, and often, early on, you're not making that much money for the time you put in. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to be very dedicated to do something like that. But to answer your question, Rob, yeah, I think it prepared me a, a great deal. I know how hard a job can actually be. Right. Um, as opposed to just thinking that it's hard. You know, at least I get to work in air conditioning. <laughs> That's true.
0: Now, you were talking about just not for the faint of heart and weeding yes. out. Can yeah. you share an example of of relatively quickly weeding out that you've experienced. You don't need to give names, but just a, a weeding out of a individual, um, over oh. the years is just kind of an example. You
2: mean if someone that Ron has
0: fired <laughs> summarily, not that, even Ron firing, summarily, but just being, being in a room and experiencing it because, you know, people have either ag- aggravating bosses or aggravating coworkers and, you know,
1: well, this is the interesting thing about the entertainment industry because it's all freelance and you're on for the duration of a project. And, You may work a number of projects every year. You will if you're lucky, and you work consistently. Very few people uh, get onto a show like Jeopardy, which was one of my very first jobs. jobs, Oh, wow. That has gone on for 30 years. They just don't exist. Uh, uh, Sometimes the people who did the soaps Mm -hmm. got to work like that, but there aren't many shows like that anymore. So more often than not, you're on for the duration of a project, and when that project ends, you have to find another job. So as opposed to the regular... As, to, as opposed to most people who have one job for a period of years and, and may during their lifetime only have a handful of jobs. In the entertainment industry, you have lots and lots of jobs. And what that means is that the chances that one of them won't work out uh, are astronomically high because you're in a different workplace, you're in a, you're in different, uh, a different protocol, uh, you're with different people, you have different expectations, and it's and like
2: the first day of school
1: all over again at the start. Multiple of every times job. a year, yeah. multiple times a year, and yeah. you, you and, and your job description is probably quite different sometimes. So sometimes it's not going to work out. I haven't had that happen to me. I've been able to sort of make every job that I've done work out for the duration. But I've known a lot of people who, who uh, weren't quite that fortunate. Either either they didn't like their boss or they quit or they got fired. I mean, people get fired regularly in TV production. Well, they that, just do.
2: Yeah, and, you know, that leads me to my next set of thoughts and questions, and that is about t- there are more Texans in, in the entertainment industry, I think, than there sure. are Californians. And there's something about a Texan, a Texas work ethic as well, that might lend itself to that. Can you speak to that?
1: I can. I can tell you that uh, uh, we fellow Texans um, – in California are always very happy to find each other. And somehow we always do. Uh, Texans in general are very, very friendly people. Mm-hmm. And and from what I've seen, most of them do come with a great, fantastic work ethic. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're very eager to please. And because because we Texans are so gracious and friendly, we, we play well together in the sandbox. And, and Texans tend to move up for that
0: reason. So um, interesting that you bring that up with a lot of Texans. Um, Tell us how you got your first job in entertainment. Was it through, because I know I've heard you, you two talk about this, Lance and Ron, over the years about kind of a network of you know Texans who moved to California and kind of how networking really helped a lot of you guys break into the industry in one way or another. Can you tell us about your first I job got, in the entertainment industry? I
1: got really, really lucky. So my first job was an internship and it was on my favorite TV show at the time. And I still couldn't believe Years later, I still can't believe my great good fortune into getting getting to go to work on my favorite TV show at the time that it was my favorite TV show. Uh, I had, in at the time that I was UT, at UT, uh, uh, they had begun, oh gosh, I forget the name of the organization, but they, the Texas Exes were starting to have um, week-long seminars in Los Angeles for kids who wanted to. It
2: was like to. LA Week or
1: something. Something, something like really that, yeah, yeah. Something like that, and I forget what the title was, but yeah. I went to the very first one and uh they flew us out to the texas exes flew us out to los angeles we stayed at the hyatt on sunset and we got to go to the seminar where a lot of texas exes who had done well in the film and television business spoke to us and gave us advice and told them what their experience was and uh two of those people were a married couple uh lynn latham and bernard Leckwick, who Mm -hmm. were the executive producers of knots landing which was that was the <laughs> soap of the late 80s and early 90s. It really was. It went from 1979 to 1993. And uh, so do your math. I'm really old. And uh, <laughs> uh, they spoke to us. I was enamored of them. Um, I struck up a conversation with them. They wound up inviting me down to the studio. Uh, Knott's at that time. At which, Lorimar, right? Lorimar. Yeah. And Lorimar then uh, was where MGM had been.
0: Oh, it's now inside okay. of
1: Sony, so it's it has been spiffed up since then, and uh, Sony sank billions into that place. But, uh, but I went down to the studio to meet them, and we had cake and ice cream because they had—they would had a birthday party for one of their small kids there. And by the end of the afternoon, they'd offered me an internship, and I wow. came. I flew back to Austin. I loaded up my car. Um, I said goodbye to my
2: parents. <laughs> and, you mo- and you moved and, to Beverly. And I moved to Beverly. Actually, <laughs> I moved to the
1: Holiday Inn in Glendale, California. So um, there I stayed it for It sounds so
2: fancy with the way you say <laughs> it. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right, so you packed your bags. And so to be a young man, a young, ambitious man in L.A., mm-hmm. any young, ambitious, anything, right? Yes. Man or woman uh, coming from Texas. The world could seem to be your oyster, right? And until, until, right, you start working and it's, and it's, you know, the entertainment business, it's called, it's a business. It's not entertainment friends. It's a tough, tough field.
1: It's a tough, tough business and it's changed dramatically in the time that I've been there. Um, It's been democratized uh, hugely. Um, When I was young, when I was in my early 20s and just beginning, the entertainment business was essentially controlled by a handful of people in Los Angeles. It was, um, if you weren't a part of a union, you had a hard time getting a job. Yeah. And um, that is where the business was. It was in the studio lots. And um, today is very, very different. Back then, there were four networks, including Fox. Today, uh, there are people producing television up and down the cable dial uh reality television of course has exploded so that has created lots Mm -hmm. and lots of job opportunities that didn't exist before and and now we've got these different platforms like netflix and hulu and amazon and so it's there are so many more opportunities than there used to be also you don't need to actually make a lot of money in entertainment to take part in it these kids know how to edit Four- and five-year-olds in front of their laptops know how to edit. They know they can take their iPhones and go out and shoot something. So it's been opened up to the entire world. Anyone who wants to do a show can find a way to do a show. They don't have to knock on doors and get their union card. Nothing against unions. I'm very pro-union. But uh, they don't have to get in with the right people and climb the same mountains that I think all of us did back then. And
2: those mountains seem so tall and so arduous. And certainly with the finite number of opportunities and potential. I mean, like right. you said, it. I mean, there was it was cut off and there was no more room at the end when those jobs were filled. So that's when if someone left getting that job, you know, as an assistant or whatever, middle management, mid-level, you know, um, track of, of in the entertainment business. It meant a lot, you know, and, and contacts meant a lot, and networking meant a whole lot. It Way before everything,
1: it meant everything Facebook. because they didn't advertise those jobs. That's right. It was and, who you knew, and there was no internet back then. So if if there wasn't you you if you were job hunting back then, you went to you went to the classifieds of the Hollywood Reporter or Variety. There wasn't much there. And that was it. That's the only place or, you could find jobs. Or backstage,
2: like if you were talent, on camera talent. Exactly, right.
1: yeah. exactly. Otherwise, you had to rely on you had to rely on your contacts and your yeah. networking and right. hope that somebody had a job for you. And right. today, I'm not going to say that those jobs are advertised more, but uh, uh, it's a little easier to get in than it used to be. Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, and I was going to say, so like when you when a project comes available now, how do you typically find out about them? Is it through your traditional old network or? Do I, you find them online on occasion, or through emails, or or whatever
1: else? I don't think I've ever been hired for a job I submitted myself to. Believe it or not, and I've done it plenty. Wow! Yeah, uh, uh, I've always gotten hired through. I've always gotten hired through referral. So people I've worked with before will call me mm-hmm. and tell me about a show and ask if I'm available to do it. And if I'm available to do it and I like them and the rate and they're, they're they're meeting my rate, then I'm happy to sign on. You
0: that's know? incredible, and that's you know I think that's a testament to you and your professionalism that. You've got a such a good reputation that people seek you out, and I think that's you know something, especially in an era where it's so competitive. How you treat people and how you are to work with is really an important thing to create longevity and success. Well, it's a business style too.
1: Absolutely, right? I think it's a testament testament to my age <laughs> just you know, kicking around. <laughs> a <long> which time. <laughs> on that note dot 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 we had touched upon jeopardy a little bit
2: earlier yes you had worked at jeopardy i in did fact, you're quoted in a book about jeopardy sort of oh, the i don't guide know about, about this jeopardy.
1: i had forgotten that i had forgotten that yeah i'm quoted uh, uh one of the producers many years ago left the show and then interviewed me afterward about yeah. my experiences working on the show and mm-hmm. included that in the book uh that was a long long time ago uh that I was on that show, they're not even in the same studio anymore. But what's funny is I know a lot of the people still there. So if they have a really low turnover, and in, in terms of no one the would show. ever leave that job. No, no one would ever leave it unless something just fantastic came along. And what comes along that's better than a show that's been going on for thirty years and is probably going to go on for thirty more? Right. Yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah. So what did you do at
1: Jeopardy? I was a very lowly production assistant and runner. So I would run errands. And when I wasn't running errands, I would answer phones. And when I wasn't answering phones, I would research the fan mail that came in because people actually wrote, they actually wrote snail mail back then. They would take a paper and a pen and write a letter. And they would particularly write letters if they disagreed with um, a fact that was on the show. And that happened a lot. Isn't interesting. It yeah. happened a lot. And wow. um, we didn't have, again, we didn't have internet back then. So um, Alex Trebek, who was also one of the producers of the show, wanted to know whether we were right or wrong. And Jeopardy! did then and still does have an enclosed library within the offices. A huge library. Um, a research library. A research library okay. for the researchers and writers to use. So I would take the mail and I would find out whatever it was that we said on the show. And I would backtrack through... Uh, the annotations and copy the annotation staple it to the letter and take it up to Alex so that he could see that we were right and they were wrong wow yeah and were were you always right was did the house always win I think they gave a video daily double to a blind contestant once, and we got a lot of mail about that. What? Uh, because the answer was kind of incorrect? because the answer was very incorrect. Okay. Um, oh. Because, Interesting. Because the contestant couldn't see couldn't see the clue, oh, so they didn't no. know what it was, and uh, I have no idea how that happened. Uh, so it
2: couldn't be described. It could not have, because no. that would have been subjective. And Well, it was a video Daily Double, right, so right. I That's don't think I mean. any... Yeah, you could describe the video. I don't know how that slipped through, but that was maybe, so many years ago. Maybe $20,000 pyramid was a, a better choice for that <laughs> particular <laughs> contestant. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, listen, to be teamed up with Fanny Flag, don't get me started about how much fun that would be for any person, blind or otherwise. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> she was awesome. Uh, the Jeopardy contestant test was hard. Oh my gosh, that was a really hard test. I took it once and I you
2: mean to become qualified to be on the show to be, to be to, yes,
1: it was the one it was the initial test that people took. Okay. Um, First of all, I
2: still have wake up in a cold sweat about SATs. So that's probably not a good path for me to ever take.
0: Yeah.
1: Is
2: to take the jeopardy test. It would be, I mean, who would do that? Who in their right mind would do that?
1: It wouldn't be good for your self-esteem. No, no, no. I think mine took a serious hit after, after taking that test and not doing well. Like what percent
0: of the people who took the test actually pass? A low percentage, and I don't know what that percentage is. Like single digits low? I don't know. Okay. I just want to interject right now that
2: I think that test should be given to anyone who wants to be a part of reality television to weed those people
1: out. Oh, God, we'd have a test pattern on every single station. <laughs> It'd be radio silence. It would just be the Indian chief.
2: It's not Carl Sagan <laughs> starring wow. in these reality shows. That's true. That's true. So let's talk about that. Let's, let's talk about the journey to reality. Yes. From traditional narrative with media. Tell me about your journey with that. Tell us about that.
1: Well, uh, I had begun doing, I had begun writing clip shows and this is going back quite a long ways too, but um, I had begun writing clip shows where, uh, where we got video. Again, this is before the internet really, or the, it was before YouTube okay. and those kinds of things that exploded. Yeah. Um, so we would have video and then we would edit, we would write and edit an entire story to go with it. And that was a genre of television that went on for a long time and it slowly morphed into reality TV
2: so let's go back a little bit and explain to our listeners about what that's really like so you have a producer and a cameraman who go out and shoot, shoot footage right. to tell the concept of a story but really you get different many times you will get, you'll come back with different footage than what you originally thought you would get so that, that story kind of changes so you as a writer have to be very clever and see visually how the story can either be told better or retold would that be correct?
1: Uh, it would be correct in some time. Well, let me provide some context. A lot of writers became, got a different title and they became story producers. They're still storytelling. They're not using, they're not using the written language to do it. And a lot of writers don't like that. I'm one of them. Um, and when that happened, you would, you would take a look at all this footage that had been shot in the field. Now, sometimes, sometimes depending on the show, they all have their own Protocol. They all have their own mo and their and their own uh, format. Uh, some of them, some of them are fairly scripted ahead of time, in that uh, uh, the people involved know exactly what they're supposed to say and do on camera. Um, and some of them are not. Uh, most production companies don't want to follow people with cameras in the hopes that something will happen. Got it. Um, yes. They don't have the time and the money to do that, so they're produced to a certain extent. Okay. And then that footage is shot, and then it goes back to. It goes back to the production company, and it's in the hands of um, a handful of people, uh, including a story producer and an editor, who the story producer usually goes through footage, decides what story they want to tell. They collaborate with other people, including the the supervising producer and the, and the executive producer. Uh, they decide the story that they want to tell with it, and then they work with the editor to tell that story uh, in the fashion that the show would like for it to be told.
2: So it could be a completely different segment or show than originally conceived. Sure, completely different. And,
0: and how much, like, how much of the, how much of the material that's shot for that type of stuff is not used? I, I would think it's probably vast more majority. Of the vast is majority numbers. is not. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: If you if you're watching, for instance, and I, I don't. I'm just guessing here, but if you're watching a Real Housewives, any one of them, and and there is a scene that lasts ten minutes on the show where the housewives are at a big dinner party. Uh, there had probably been at least three cameras on that dinner party for six hours. Wow. Uh, so you have a, if you are the story producer or the editor or both, you have a lot of footage to look through. And then that is gradually winnowed down to the 10 minutes you see on the show. And the 10 minutes you see on the show are usually the most dramatic, uh, the most effective, and they fall in line with the story that the uh, that the production company and the network would like to tell.
2: Tables are turned. Tables are tossed. Tables are flipped. Tables are flipped. Wigs.
0: <laughs> Prostitution we- whore. Weaves now- <laughs> <Exactly>. are snatched. <laughs> now, like when when they're produced, do the people that actually fight do they really have a loveness for each other or?
1: Or is that for the camera? You know,
0: is it for the cameras or is it somewhere in between? Like I think
1: that varies from show to show. Okay. Uh, uh, again, some of these shows are more produced than others. I, but there's a weird phenomenon that happens with people who are in reality TV, and I've seen it happen before. They know that they're supposed to behave a certain way on camera, and they take this on in their reality, in the, in the reality in the of real their life. day-to-day In lives. real life. Yeah.
2: That's not actually followed by cameras necessarily. That's not
1: followed by cameras, and I think that's why you see a lot of these people get just utterly ruined. Um, once they've been on a successful show for a long time, because they come to believe that the person that we're seeing on camera is who they are, or who they're supposed to be.
0: It's kind of like with um, not to not to talk too um too vintage. It's kind of like with Joan Crawford, where she was always on as Joan Crawford whenever she walked out the door. She played that she role a of career, a movie star, being that, and that was her career, and it became her life. And you know, like anyone who saw Feud, and I, we talked about this in another in another podcast segment. It's just. she fascinating. was awesome. It really was an amazing show, but yeah. you really kind of got to see she never ever left the character of Joan Crawford ever because
2: that's that's she played herself. She played the best that that was, yeah, and that worked for her, and that's what her audience wanted. Now, speaking of which, which goes my theory of always leave your house looking like a movie star, even
0: if you are not a movie star. Let's do a segue to Ron's style. And we will do that when we come back with Ron Davis right after we take this short break. How exciting!